This episode is brought to you by Gorgeous. Gorgeous is the leading customer support platform built for e-commerce brands, helping merchants unlock revenue and deliver exceptional customer service. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello, everyone. It's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 112 of the Stairway to CEO podcast. I'm your host, Lee, and today I spoke with Laura Shaw, the founder and CEO of Henna Organics. Henna Organics is a luxury beauty brand that combines highly effective clean organic formulas with Nordic design, so you can experience healthy, radiant skin without sacrificing aesthetics or high quality standards. In this episode, Laura shares with us her story from growing up in Kansas City, playing competitive table tennis, to attending the University of Missouri with dreams of becoming a reporter, to teaching herself web design and branding, and eventually launching Henna in 2015. She talks about what she does to overcome feelings of defeat and rejection, how she found success with launching in hundreds of independent retailers, and how to deal with family and friends who might have good intentions, but sometimes let their own fears get in the way. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, we'd love it if you left us an awesome review. And don't forget to click subscribe to get updates on when we publish new episodes every Tuesday morning. You can follow us on Spotify or check us out at stairwaytoceo.com. Until next time, I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Laura, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for joining the show. I'm so excited to hear your story in building Henna Organics. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you are calling from North Carolina. You've only lived there for like a year and a half now? Yeah, as of maybe a tiny bit longer, as of uh, August 2020. And you chose to move there because of a Google search. So what were the key things that attracted you guys to move there? Yeah. So prior to this, we were in Vegas, uh, my husband and I, and we wanted, both of us wanted someplace with beach and ocean because desert is, we learned is not for us. Definitely not for me. I don't like the dryness and preferably not 120 degrees in the summer, but also we don't love winter because my husband is Swedish and he's had his fair share of winters and uh, not too humid because I'm a mosquito magnet and a smaller city, and just lots of random criteria. And we literally Googled all of it, and Wilmington, North Carolina popped up. And my husband, being Swedish, was like, oh, it can't be the only city in America that meets all the criteria. And I was like, yes, it is, according to Google. So October 2019, we flew over here. And for anyone that's not been to Wilmington, which I assume is still a lot of people since I'd actually never heard of it before I moved here, uh, the airport, it's so small that when you go in, like when you land, it doesn't even look like an airport on the inside. It looks like a, like a, like a holiday inn or Hampton Inn. There's like rocking chairs. And so as soon as we stepped out, I was so confused. I was like, did we just leave the airport and enter a hotel? Like, where are we? But we fell in love with the beaches. People are super friendly here. But yeah, the big seller for us is the beaches. And so Google in this situation was very, very helpful. Nice. Interesting. Sounds like an adventure, you know, moving somewhere completely <laughs> where you don't know anybody and it's all brand new. That's awesome. So where did you grow up? Where are you from originally? I was technically born in China and I came to the States when I was two and a half and I actually grew up in the Midwest. So we first were in Iowa city because my dad was finishing up school there. He got a full ride. That's how he could afford to come to the States. And then we lived in Cedar Rapids and then we moved to Kansas City. I actually remember my second day of class when we moved to Kansas City, there was a Bill Nye the Science Guy video on in class. And he said this, Bill Nye, he said, do you know, you know what they say about Iowa? Idiots out wandering around. And everyone started laughing. I was just thinking like, I just moved here from Iowa like last week. Uh, <laughs> oh no. Yeah. 
I don't, I don't hate Bill Nye, but I was like, oh, thanks. That, that makes me feel good. Right. Way to make all the Iowa kids feel really confident. What the, the kids heck? Like, ha, 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 so funny. Huh. Uh, but anyways, so I, yeah, I grew up in the Midwest, but had a pretty alternative upbringing in the sense that I actually started playing table tennis when I was very young. So it's a pretty, not, not as popular of a sport in the States, but pretty big sport in the rest of the world. And being pretty good at it awarded me the opportunity to travel. So despite growing up in Midwest, I had the opportunity to travel to places like, you know, China several times, Brazil, Spain, et cetera, Canada, many, many times. And so I was exposed to that from a really young age. How old were you when you were playing like competitive table tennis? From eight and a half, I would say actually until 18. The reason I cut it off at 18 is in my mind, that's when I officially retired. I kept playing a little bit longer just because I had a sponsor and I had certain obligations. At that time when I was playing, you could not really make a living out of it in the States unless you went abroad. And for my family and kind of the agreement that we had made was kind of prioritize college. And so once, you know, once I get into college, if there's not any kind of like, if there's no playing conditions, like depending on what city I would end up, if there weren't conditions where I could keep training, then probably just stop. Whereas these days, I think it's starting to get a little bit better here where you actually have a little bit more potential to keep pursuing it. But um, I didn't really mind because that was kind of what I thought would happen anyways. But yeah, so bouncing around or traveling a lot, I think was still pretty, that was still kind of the norm to me. And it was really nice because no offense, I had a really great upbringing, but growing up in Kansas was very boring. <laughs> Nothing happened. Like the, and I grew up in suburban Kansas city. So like the biggest news would be like my neighbor calling the cops on another neighbor because the dog pooped in the yard. Arrest that neighbor. How yes. dare them? <laughs> How dare they poop? Uh, as if there's not worse things in life. So it was just nice to always have some kind of trip that I knew was coming up. And also just, it was just nice to see other parts of the world and knowing that there's just so much out there. So um, definitely fueled my curiosity. And so I kind of knew probably at age like 10 that I was probably going to be moving around a lot when I became an adult. And then that's kind of what ended up happening. So yeah, that's really interesting. I think, you know, what was it like being a kid and playing such a competitive sport so often, right? Like I imagine, did you miss out on stuff in high school, like some of the dances or prom, like what were some of the things that you maybe missed out on as a kid because you were so busy playing this competitive sport? Yeah, I missed out on quite a few things, but in retrospect, I don't really regret any of it, but I missed out on most school dances. I couldn't really hang out with my friends after school uh, that often because I trained like, I still trained about five times a week. And then weekends, like especially Sundays, I would go to a table tennis club and I would be there for like four or five hours on Sundays. And so just had to have a lot more discipline. Uh, my husband actually is a former pro as well, but much, much better than me. Did you guys like meet at a match yes. or something? <laughs> we met at US Open. We totally did. Uh, we did. That's funny. Um, so yeah, so he, so that's actually something really nice that we have in common. I'd never expected to meet someone through the sport. So I think it's just nice to have that common ground understanding, like, you know, even though we come from different sides of the world, very different backgrounds, he's Swedish, I'm, you know, Chinese American. I think that we have a lot of similar experiences growing up. And so, but yeah, it's, uh, I don't, I don't regret it. At, at the time, of course, it was, I wouldn't say it was difficult. It was, of course, I was jealous sometimes that people would get to go to parties or, you know, get to do things, but I think even at that age, I, I was pretty driven. So I'm not saying I was so wise for my age, but I could still see and understand, okay, this is good for not just my present, but also my future. And so I think that bothered me less. And I don't think a lot of the things in high, especially in high school, a lot of the things that mattered to a lot of the kids there were the things that they consider to be really difficult issues. I don't think they really bothered me, maybe just because my mind was in another place. Yeah. When you're traveling, you're exposed, you like can see what else is possible in the world. And then you realize, wait a minute, this stuff for high school is like not that fun. You it know what I mean? Like, it and I remember matter. specifically in high school, this friend of mine 
her mom, they were like, oh my God, high school is the best four years of your life. You have to go to every <laughs> single game and dance and promise everything. And I'm like, oh my God, if this is the highlight of my life, I am screwed. Like, yeah, <laughs> I literally, that I was, someone actually told me that I think it was, um, like the, the parent of one of my friends, but they said, you know, if this is the highlight of your life, you are going to be in for a sore disappointment because you still have to live the whole rest of your life. It's literally a drop. Yeah. And it's great if you have a fantastic experience and I'm not even going to say I had a bad one. I had a relatively good one. I just wasn't as close to my classmates because I wasn't around as much, but, um, but things that when I say th issues that people have that I think are unimportant are like high school gossip or, girls getting upset with each other because somebody wore an outfit that they deemed was similar and you know like after coming back from a trip where I'm like competing and you know you know just doing a lot of other things as well as also going to places that are not that are you know I, I went to also third world countries I went to places where you actually see what struggles are and then someone's like oh my god her shirt is almost the same as mine it's like I really could care less Right. Well, this is what happens when you grow up in like sheltered America. Like you have a lot of kids like that, that have no exposure, or at least myself growing up, like it was really expensive to travel. Right. So you didn't really go anywhere unless you could drive. You didn't fly around. Like a lot of parents couldn't afford it. And so there you are kind of just in your bubble. <laughs> yeah. And I was really grateful for that. Like, you know, one huge bonus of being good at the sport was that my trips were paid for. My parents didn't have to pay for them. You know, everything was paid for. And um, especially at that age, it's great because, you know, we'd go on these trips and you get kind of like an allowance. But when you're that young, you just spend it on food. So like we, when we got allowances, I remember it was just all the food I wasn't allowed to eat at home. Like I would go abroad or go someplace and I would go to the grocery store and just fill my cart with like basically all the food I would never eat today because I'm very health conscious. But at that time, with the metabolism and just not caring, I would fill the cart with just every junk food imaginable, like 10 bags of chips. And it's just like, oh my God, I can't believe I can afford this. They're paying for this. Yeah. What happened after? So you went to college. It sounds like you got a scholarship probably for table tennis or no. Yeah, I stopped, but I don't know if I would have even gotten it because like, I don't think a lot of places care. I'm just being honest. Right. Like, like I was football. actually thinking what colleges actually have that mm, as a sport. I don't know. Not really. Like it's, it's a nice extracurricular to put on your college application, but. So it really kind of stops after 18. Like it kind yes. of really ends. Yes. The career kind yes. of goes away. Okay. Yeah. And then I, I study um, broadcast journalism. I went to university of Missouri. So I went to Mizzou and that had kind of been my dream actually since I was probably a little kid as one of those, you know, kids that instead of, well, it's not like I didn't watch cartoons, but I loved Dateline with Stone Phillips and Jane Polly. And I, wa I would watch that as a kid and pretend to be a reporter. My parents thought that was very strange, but they just <laughs> were like, okay. Um, Cause you know, ki most kids at that age are like, I want to be a singer. And I was just like, you know, pretending like I was a little reporter with my That's hairbrush. Cool. Um, but so I went there and my husband and I are actually started already dating at that point. And so we were long distance for four years. And um, I think by my sophomore or by my junior year, I actually kind of realized that journal, like that the journalism life was probably not the path that I should go down because it's such a brutal industry and it's so exhausting. And it's not that it's not rewarding, but it's, it's really tough. Like you need to live and breathe it and absolutely love it because you, you definitely do not go in into it for the money. The pay is not great. The hours and just the things that you see, especially if you do hard news, you're going to be seeing murder, just a lot of darkness on a daily basis. And so I just kind of realized pretty early on, I just realized, I don't think this is for me, but I was already there. I went there for that purpose. So I, I graduated and I got the degree because my parents, that was the agreement I've made with my parents because my parents, you know, it was a big struggle for them to get to the States. And so I promised them like, I'm at least going to graduate and get that degree before I just go, boop, boop, go somewhere else and just do my thing. So I did. And I got, and then I flew to Sweden and then I moved there. Why did you move to Sweden? So you decided I don't want to be a reporter anymore. And yeah. then what did, <laughs> how did you go from that to, oh, I'm just going to go to Sweden now, hang out with the boyfriend. 
Yeah, it was a little bit more planned. I, me picking Sweden, whether, you know, it was actually just came down to being a little bit more rational. At that point, we were long distance. We had spent bouts of time together, like, you know, summers. When I was off from school, we would find ways to visit each other. So we did see each other fairly regularly for being long distance during those years. But we, you know, the goal was to be able to live together. And so I did not want to marry him just to get him into the country. You know, I really wanted to move in together, really make sure that it works and that we can take our relationship to the next level. And the only way to do that legally was for me to go there unless we got married. Yeah. So I applied for residency through our relationships. So the laws are a little bit different in Sweden compared to here. So I was able to get residency by basically it's called being a sambo, basically to cohabit, to live together. Because in Sweden, if you live, for example, if you've lived together for a year or longer, you have a lot of the same rights as if you're married. So, so yeah, so I got residency that way. I moved to Sweden. We lived there for about a year and a half. That was a nice wake up call. Moved to Sweden and realized everything I'd ever learned was completely useless because based on my background and the the jobs and the internships that I'd done in college, I thought, well, at least I should, even if I don't have a burning passion for it, I should pursue something regarding journalism because it's all I have to show for other than working at, you know, a Japanese restaurant and working at a call center. I just mean like all the other jobs and internships are all regarding radio and broadcast, but <laughs> no one's going to consider someone who you know, at that time spoke Swedish at the level of maybe a three-year-old with a super thick American accent. So uh, needless to say, I got rejected from like every job I applied for that had re required any remote skill. And so, and around that time, my husband was actually thinking about retiring early. He, it wasn't because the career wasn't going the way he wanted to. I think he just always was wanting to think ahead. And so as an athlete, regardless of what sport you're in, you have an expiration date. Sometimes it can be later in life. Sometimes it can be sooner if you get injured. And so he decided he kind of wanted to retire early. So at that point we did another Google thing. Uh, we decided, why don't we have a fresh start and move someplace? My husband suggested New Zealand. And I asked him why, because neither of us had been there. And he said, because he thought that some of the scenes from Lord of the Rings we're filmed in New Zealand and it looks pretty nice. So why don't we go for it? And we were at that time in our early 20s. I was in my early 20s. And so I was like, sure. And so we sold everything. And then we showed up. We flew to New Zealand. We had four suitcases. And um, a, a quick note, you cannot book a one-way ticket to New Zealand. You need a return ticket. So I actually, we could not get on the flight at the Sydney airport because I didn't have a return ticket. So I had to buy tickets from New Zealand to Fiji at the at the gate so they let me on the flight and then we were in New Zealand for a year and a half and then we were then we moved to Australia for a while and we moved back to Sweden and then we bounced back to the states so kind of that part kind of worked out the way I had imagined or I, the way I had hoped for when I was younger just to be able to try out a few places and you know just I guess see the world so what other work experiences did you have before you came up with the idea for Hannah? Like what, what were some of those experiences that you had? Yeah. So the rejections and I guess that wake up call I mentioned in Sweden, it made me realize that I needed to acquire some new skills in order to be able to make a living, especially when we moved to New Zealand. And my husband thought same thing um, if he was going to quit table tennis. And so this part happened just, it just worked out so well. My husband this was like Christmas 2011. My husband picked up a programming book at a book sh a bookshop during Christmas and having no background, but he does have a natural knack for it. I think some of, maybe it runs a bit in the family because his, uh, his late father was really good at it. So maybe it's just, you know. In his genes. Predestined to be good at it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I started just teaching myself a lot of things online. Um, I started teaching myself web design, graphic design, branding and did not have that background. But I think that's, those are the things that I gravitate toward naturally. Even when I did broadcast journalism, they taught us how to film. And for example, some of the same basic rules with, when it comes to filming and photography, also tying in when it comes to types of design. And so with that combined, we sort of like mini bluffed our way into getting this corporate client together with another business partner of ours. When I say bluffed, because we had no work experience. And so this was like a 
company where we offered to build a new business and service system for them. So that would be my husband and our other business partner. And then I would offer to redesign everything for them. But we would, we offered to basically be one third of the price for three firms in Stockholm that they were hiring at that time. And thankfully we did really well and we actually delivered ahead of schedule and it, it worked out. And that was what, and that was a big deal for us because it was a good payday. You know, even though we were a third of the price, it easily paid for us being in New Zealand, all those travels and everything. And on top of that, we were able to start saving some money. So it was like, just, I guess, a combination of just being scrappy and also, and we ended up pick, we ended up both picking skill sets that we actually could end up using together. So my husband and I, even at that time, we started working together and thankfully we worked well together and we didn't kill each other. So Yay. <laughs> That's always a positive. So how long yes. did you have that business? And at what point did you kind of start thinking about the beauty industry? We had that business. I mean, it technically still exists today, but I'm not a part of it. But the beauty thing, I always say it's like a combination of inspiration and desperation. So when I, I started getting into trying to eat non-GMO, trying to buy organic in 2009, and not to go too deep into it because it takes too long, but it was a slow news day. I was working at a K, uh, an NBC affiliate. They sent me to a tomato farm. Like I said, slow news day. I was like, tomato farm, really? And that's when I actually found out that most uh, produce from farms are not organic. I just thought if it came from a farm, it was organic. But it's actually not the case. And that was kind of an eye-opener. That made me kind of start transitioning to trying to be more conscious of even just the food I was consuming. And then, of course, the steps after that were other consumer products. By the time we moved to Sweden and New Zealand, at that time, natural and clean beauty in the States was very behind for two reasons. First off, it looked so ugly. You would be absolutely ashamed to carry in public. Like I understand eco, but products at that time looked like you took something from a tree and you scratched it with a knife and then you picked it up and you tried to wrap it around. And it's like, oh, here, we're eco, not pretty. And second off, they were not nearly as effective, unfortunately, compared to their non-natural counterparts. And most people, especially women when it comes to beauty products, most women are not willing to switch to a cleaner alternative if it doesn't work at all. You know what I mean? It's like, ooh, switch to this blush, but it's going to look terrible on your face. Like, it's not a great selling point. And so in, in Sweden and New Zealand, I was noticing that even at pharmacies, they were having more natural products. Not, once again, not fantastic, but at that time, way ahead of the States. And at that time, I was in my early to mid-20s. And I thought, okay, I have no background in that. It's kind of like a pipe dream. Maybe in 10, 15 years when I've earned my stripes and I have a lot of experience and more money saved and, you know, I guess- Eventually start a beauty line. You were thinking you had to have all these things in a row. Yeah. Yes. And I, I just thought that I just, I didn't really think it was possible. And so I guess talking myself, talking- that idea down to myself. Uh, and then we moved to Vegas and I got really disgustingly dry lips. And I'm not going to pretend like there was no lip balm that existed in the world that could have worked. They existed and I, tr- I bought them. I bought some organic lip balms and they worked fine, but they didn't work great. And on top of that, as someone who is a very big lover of beautiful design, it was also just not the most aesthetically pleasing products. And especially after living abroad all those years, I kind of had to force, we had, we were kind of forced to focus on fewer items. I had already developed at that point, a focus on having high quality of everything because I didn't have a ton of stuff, really like quality over quantity. And so we started like, I started making them in the kitchen. And at that time we were actually working out of a co-working space, like a tech co-working space. Making what in the, in the kitchen? Oh, the lip balm. I started making lip balm in the kitchen and in Vegas. And the tech co-working space was because we were actually working on an app that did not really take off, but we actually started handing out the lip balms like to our guy friends there. And these are guys, these are, you know, and I say this with as much love as possible because these are my friends, but you know, they're mostly geeks, like geeks and nerds. And they're like some of my favorite people, but they're also mostly straight dudes who really could care less about how something looks. So when I was handing lip balms out, they just wanted to know if it worked. Most people working there had dry lips. You know, the Vegas desert is just brutal. And so like one of our guy friends, I remember he had this big cut on his lip and he used it. And then after a couple of days, 
a lot of it healed and he was freaking out. He was texting me. He was like, oh my God, I can't believe it worked. And so we knew that the product, the lip balm itself worked really well. And at that time I was starting to, I would say actually not feel that passionate about what we were doing. Even the work that we were doing, like business and service systems, it was more interesting for for my husband and the other guy. Not so much for me. I'm not a programmer. Well, you had this product, this lip stuff, and you were starting to see some kind of success a little bit with people liking it. And so yes. you were starting to think, yes. wait, maybe I have something here. This is more interesting. And maybe I can me. do it now. Yeah. It's something that I had, had been in the back of my head for a few years. Mm-hmm. And so, but the thing was like having no, once again, no contacts, whatnot. But the good thing that I did have at that time was I started to have some money saved. And so, you know, I talked through it with my husband. I said, like, you know, basically asked, like, is it okay? Like, are, are we like, are we okay? If, you know, I just start doing this most of the time. No, also knowing that I might not make any money from it for quite a while. And he said, yeah, of course. And then of course the, the benefit of having a wonderful husband is that you get free labor. So he joined on not too long after for free, but now he's actually is probably 90, 95% of the time on like we work on it together. Like he's now these days, he's like, he's my business partner and that happened. But at that time I just started doing it. And, you know, I decided that I didn't want to fundraise and it's to each their own. I have friends that have done it that route. And especially coming from the tech space, I was, that was something I was exposed to pretty regularly. People fundraising, meeting with investors. We had been meeting with investors for other types of potential opportunities that were not regarding henna. So I was more pretty familiar with that, but I just felt like, okay, this is going to be a huge learning curve. I know nothing about this industry. I almost prefer to do it. I wouldn't even say the tougher way because there's, you know, every path you take has its different barriers or whatever you want to call it, or difficulties or challenges. But I felt like, how am I going to know, for example, if, if I fundraise and I hire different people, it's like, unless I get the absolute perfect team, how will I even know if they're doing a good job? Cause I don't even know what they're supposed to be doing. You know what I mean? I have no experience. So you learned those things so that you could hire appropriately is what you're saying. Once. Yeah. So and you dove into marketing, you dove into sales, you dove into all of these things yes, so that you, just, when you could hire, you knew what you needed because you were doing it yourself. That's what I felt. Yeah. And the thing is, if you look at the, this, and I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer, but if you do look at actual, like the stats, you know, most businesses aren't going to take off. Right. Mm-hmm. And still having, keeping that in mind, I wanted to give myself the best shot I possibly could. And so, um, in the beginning I was able to, for example, my husband's programming and my design, we were able to save a lot of money because right from the start, we, we've always had a beautiful website, you know, even from the very start that we were able to do. I tried to bootstrap and I tried to hire, hire this um, designer who did some freelance to do a packaging design. And he's very talented, but it just didn't end up being what I thought I like. It's, you know, you have an idea in your mind and sometimes even if you verbalize it, it's different from what you pictured in your head. And so I just ended up designing it myself. And so even to this day, like our packaging, our branding, I'm actually still the one doing it. But these days it's not that I can't hire someone, I just enjoy it. Uh, So we saved a lot of money at that time. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. With the rising costs of acquiring new customers, retention is a key focus for DDC brands. And creating outstanding customer experiences shouldn't be costly or a burden for your customer support team. This is exactly why Gorgeous is so great. They centralize all of your customer communications into one beautiful dashboard, personalizing each experience along the way, which not only helps you retain your customers, but also saves you time and increases revenue. Gorgeous works with over 9,000 brands, including Princess Polly, Olipop, and Baksu. So if you'd like to be one of them, head on over to Gorgeous.com and mention the Stairway to See You podcast to get two months free. That's two months free of Gorgeous when you head over to Gorgeous.com. That's G-O-R-G-I-A-S.com and mention the Stairway to See You podcast. Thank you so much to our amazing sponsors. I hope you're able to take advantage of these exclusive deals designed just for you. Now let's get back to the show. So 
So what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced? Like, what were some of the mindset things that you had to overcome? What did people say to you in your family and friend group when you said, Hey, I want to go off and like build this business? Yeah. Well, my friends were overall a lot more supportive. I think just being in the tech space that they were, they were taking much bigger risks than I was, especially financially with the fundraising. So they were all like, yeah, go for it. Family. My husband's family was very supportive, but not mine. And I love my parents. Don't get me wrong. But I think if I'm trying to analyze why they reacted that way, you know, coming from China, like my dad is a very smart man, right? He's got plenty of degrees. You know, he's got a PhD, two masters, three bachelors. That's how he got to the States. Like when he came to the States, I think he had somewhere around like $40 in his pocket. Like my dad was very poor. You know, my parents are both very poor. So from his smarts, that's how he got a full ride to even come to the U.S. Once he got here and, you know, he, you know, after he finished his education, he, you know, got a great job and everything. But I think that fear, because of the hardships he experienced, I think him and my mom still, they didn't want me to put myself at risk in any way. So growing up, I was always told, like, get a safe job, you know, like find something safe. He would oftentimes say, like, why don't you try to become a professor, you know, like, you know, because after a certain number of years, if you can, if you can get tenured, you know, then it's like you have a job for life. Those are, those were the things that were kind of ingrained in me growing up. But I think, so when I became or told them I was going to become an entrepreneur, the reaction was just uh, not even lukewarm. It was like, okay, so they're like, so are you going to get a job after this doesn't work out? <laughs> you know, I mean, they're like, do you know what, how are you going to pay the bills? And like, when are you going to find a real job? right? Like, cause you, how long is this going to last? It sounded almost like a hobby. Like, oh, that's so cute. But like when you run out of money. Right. When, not if, when, when you fail. And, <laughs> yes. And being Chinese parents who want to take care of their child because they grew up poor. First thing my dad asked, he's just like, oh, he's like, are you in trouble? Like, do you need money? And I was like, no, I was like, I've saved a little bit of my own. Thank you very much. It's like, you can't find a job. Can you? That's why you're resorting to this last resort thing called entrepreneurship. Yes. And literally probably up until we've been around for seven years, our business. And I think up until like eight months ago, every time I would talk to my parents, my dad always asked me if I needed money, even though we're way past that point. He just does it on autopilot. He's like, are you okay? Do you need money? It's okay if you need it. Don't be afraid to ask. So how did you deal with this stuff? Like, I mean, if there, and were there other family members too, when people tell you that, I think a lot of people's response is to question themselves and to think, I don't know, am I making the right decision? Um, I don't know. Maybe I will only be doing this for like six months. And then maybe I should think about having a backup job. Like, I think it really affects people. You know, these are people that, I mean, I know with my parents, I had a very similar situation where, you know, I love my parents, but they definitely told me that it was not possible for me to achieve certain things. They thought it was never going to happen. And when will I get a real job or start thinking about doing that? And you know, I, I kind of was lucky and maybe a similar situation to have like a different mindset and believe that, you know, and I'm going to try this anyways, even though you think I'm not going to make it, I'm going to try anyways. So I can find out for myself. But I think a lot of people don't have that mentality. A lot of people take what people say very seriously and affects them and it, it affects their entire life. At what point did you, do you feel like you kind of cut those strings and weren't as attached to the words that loved ones were saying to you? Yeah, thankfully, I think part of it is just my natural personality type. And I think that combined with maybe the years experience with sports, that just taught me to have thicker skin. Because for me, it didn't really affect me at all. Because it, by the, when they said that about me wanting to be an entrepreneur, it was not the first time in my life I had heard similar phrases. You know, I had phrases where some family members had said to me when I was younger. And once again, I don't think they mean ill by it. But it can definitely demoralize you and make you feel very defeated if you take those words at face value. But even saying things to me like, you know, you think you think your friends and you are all the same, because I grew up in the Midwest, you think you guys are all the same, but you know, once you get older, you're gonna realize you're different. They're never gonna view you the same way as they view other kids because you're not white. You know, I got those phrases and sometimes from my own family members. And so of course, and they don't, and the thing is they didn't even say them in a mean way. It was more like, we don't want you to be hurt. The way I was hurt. Like they're basically putting their own fears on you 
from their own experiences. Exactly. Like, don't get too close. Like they're, you know, we're not the same, those type of phrases. And it like, thankfully, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's being headstrong or naivete, whatever you want, whatever it was at that age. I just did. I just kind of disregarded those. I was like, eh, I don't think so. <laughs> but that's usually my problem. I was like, I disagree. Like, I don't that's think really so. crazy though, because I think that we can change our mindsets and we can work on our mindsets, but we can't change our background, our ethnicity. Mm -hmm. Right. And so mm -hmm. for someone to kind of say that about you and your background and like something you literally can't change, that is like, I think an even harder thing to overcome because mindset is like, I guess that kind of maybe goes in the same bucket a little bit with mindset, but, but do you see what I'm saying? Like someone saying you can achieve something is very different than saying like, you can't achieve it because of the way that you look. That's really crazy. And that's a tough thing to hear. And also to be able to overcome, especially when it's your own family. Like it's, it's even trickier because yeah, I mean, and this is something I think is important for people to hear is that still, I am still fortunate enough to have family that mean well. I know when they say certain things, I know it comes from a good place. Sometimes though, you can't pick who your family are. You might have family members, whether it's immediate or extended family members that may be a little bit more toxic when it comes to the things that say. Sometimes the things they say to you may not be from a good place. It might be spiteful. It might be jealousy. You know, it might be that they wanted to be an entrepreneur, but they never dared to do it. And now they don't want to see someone from a younger generation in the family, you know, overshadowing them. There's so many different variables and we all have come from such, once again, different backgrounds. So I think sometimes it's important that if you really trust your intuition and you feel like, you know, whether you call it your gut feeling or your intuition, that this is the path that you should go down. It's okay sometimes to acknowledge even if you don't want to verbally say it to them, but sometimes they are wrong. Sometimes family members, sometimes friends, sometimes loved ones, sometimes they're wrong. And sometimes it's well-intentioned and sometimes it actually straight up is not. I'd say they're probably wrong more often than they're right. <laughs> yes, it's true. It's true. I have also had friends where they have had more, you know, toxic family members who have said things just to push them down, just to make them feel as low as possible because it. It, it's that their form of lashing out, you know, they're bitter about life, they're upset. So they unfortunately take it out on family members. So that's why it's sometimes too, it's hard to do, but kind of almost take a step back and realize like whether it's mom or dad or a grandparent or an uncle or a friend, they're all human beings and all of us are flawed and they have their own insecurities. They have their own scars, you know, they've had, they've been hurt. And the more bitter that person is, the more most likely someone has really hurt them in the past. And so unfortunately, if they have not healed themselves, they will transfer it on to someone else. And so sometimes they're not right. And so I'm, I'm grateful in the sense that my natural personality type is able to kind of still just ignore most of those things. Because I know that's not the case for everyone, especially I can imagine if, let's say it's a family member and you really idolize that person. Like what they say to you is, it's like law, right? And then they tell you it's not possible. You can't do it. I can imagine how hard it is. Like the only person that we really have in this life is ourselves. And that sounds really scary and like lonely, but it's true. At the end of the day, the only thing we have is ourselves. And we have to be able to love ourselves, encourage ourselves, be our biggest champion. And it's so hard. And we all have our own experiences. And we're told all these things from all these different people. But at the end of the day, if you're going to sleep thinking, I really deeply want to do this thing, but I'm told all of these things. And I don't know if I should do this. I mean, you have to quiet the noise at some point and you have to just listen to yourself because yourself is trying to guide you called intuition, I think, right? And it's trying to tell you certain things and you have to like be able to build the muscle to learn to, to listen to yourself is what I think. Absolutely. Otherwise, if you don't build that muscle and you don't ever work it out, you're never going to follow your own stuff. You're always going to follow what everybody else is saying, and you probably will not be as, sex, as successful or as happy as you probably would be if you listen to yourself. Yeah. And the thing is, every time you betray your own intuition, it just gets weaker. You know, it's, it's literally like you're betraying your own trust. And the more you go with it, the stronger it gets and that gut instinct and that intuition, it just starts getting honed in, you know, and it becomes easier. It starts being, you know, easier to cut through the BS and to be able to tell when 
you know, somebody wants to work with you, then something seems off. Like it's easier to see red flags, but it's also easier to see opportunity because you've done something in the past, you've gone for it, you know, whether it be however many times and even how, how, despite however many times you fail, the times you do succeed, now, you know, okay, that worked. Right. It's kind of like taking shit at a job, right? If you keep taking shit, you're going to always take shit. You're going to take more and more shit if you don't stop it. Right. And the only person that can make it stop is you. No one else. Cause every, otherwise you're just enabling it to happen. And it's really on you and playing the victim and saying, Oh, they shouldn't do this to me. They shouldn't do that to me. You're letting them like, there is sometimes I think where maybe not like, of course there's like responsibility on both sides on both sides though. So it's also you enabling people to treat you a certain way. And that victim card is, is really easy to play and really easy to be. We can all play it. That's the thing. We can all play it. Yeah. And you know, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before we started recording how, you know, there's always going to be someone better off than you and also someone worse off. And that's why that mindset is so important because you can always, you can always play the victim card. You can, but it's not going to get you very far in life. You know, it will not. And the thing is, you know, I've had people ask me, even people who have worked for me and people who I've mentored sometimes will ask me very innocently. And it's, it's, it's sad that they ask this in the sense that I feel like they're just accustomed to it. And they just assume that this is how it is. And I've had even much younger women ask me who are Asian American, and they look up to me and they ask me, they said, but you know, but don't you feel like it's, you have so many disadvantages, because you know, you're a female, and you're Asian. And it's a little bit sad hearing that from someone who's just starting out in life. You know, I, like I said, I'm, I'm 33, you're 20 years old. And it's sad that at 20, you're 20, I feel like you've got to be bright eyed, bushy tailed, ready to take on the world. You know, I always, I always laugh when I think bushy tail because I think like a big fluffy, like funny little tail, but you know what I mean? And it's sad that they are already have all these negative, you know, assumptions and fears right at that, such a young age. And I just say to them, I said, okay, we can, yeah, we could say that, but there's also certain skills and advantages that I have that have nothing to do with my gender or my race that I was simply born with and that I've utilized that give me an advantage in life. And the example I I use is that I'm a very fast reader. Like I'm not one of those people that can read a page in two seconds, you know, where they just go like that or whatever it is, but I've always been a very, very fast reader and I am pretty good at retaining the information from what I read. So I used to get in trouble in school because when you have reading time, I would set the book down really quickly and the teacher would always think that I'm being lazy and come over and want to quiz me. So that's, an, that's the skill that has benefited me. And I'm a little bit, I'm a, uh, I, I definitely have no issue standing up to authority. And so then I would very dryly, sarcastically, even in elementary school, you know, summarize what I just read. And I think that's why some, I think actually that class, I think that's why I didn't get a great grade. Because I, all the other classes I <laughs> did, thought I, you I, were I, a smart I don't ass. think she liked, I was such a smart ass. Even one time, like when we were in third grade, I'm a very fast typer at these, we had these like typing machine pad things. And anyways, I typed so quickly that she said that score wasn't possible. She told me mine was broken and I should probably shouldn't have said this. I was like, I don't think so. I just think I type a lot faster than you. <laughs> that's amazing. Good for I know, you. Probably not the best thing to say. No, but, that's um, excellent. I think I think yeah. that's the exact response you should have. But yeah, typing and reading. So once again, that has nothing to do with my gender, with my ethnicity, with whatever, right? But I was born with those two skills and I nurtured them because I loved to read when I was a kid. And typing was fun. I discovered in third grade, typing is fun, especially if you type like a little ninja, like I do. And so those things have helped me a lot in my life because I can do a lot of tasks a lot faster. And so I use that as an example, for example, that that woman I told you about, I use that example and I told that to her because I said that you probably have skills, you know, whether I'm aware of them or not, that could give you a great advantage in life if you really just utilize them. And so, you know, I said, it's really just, I truly believe what you focus on expands. If you only focus on things that might make you worse off or have, you know, be behind in life, it's probably, that's all you're going to see. And you probably are going to see all these reasons why you're just not cutting it in life, right? You have to focus on what you actually can control 
Yeah. I mean, if I looked at statistics and said, oh, only 2% of females get venture funding, I'll just quit now and not fundraise. I would have never been able to build my company and then get it acquired. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you can't be thinking those things. You just got to run for it and have the belief that you can do it. Yeah, exactly. The mindset I think is is really important. So I'm not saying every, it's always a walk in the park or anything, but no, because people have different varying challenges that are harder to overcome than others that, you know, we get it, but you know, mindset's really important. So before we wrap up, cause we only have a few more minutes. Um, I want to talk about the product. You know, I love, I'm just put on the, the hand cream now. It's so nice. Packaging is really beautiful, black, white, super luxe. It's gorgeous the face oil I've been using. I love oils. So it's amazing. Obviously the fact that it's organic is, is my favorite part. And yes, the lip exfoliator is actually amazing because it actually doesn't feel dry. Like I was noticing, cause sometimes when you use these exfoliators, it's like, it feels soft, but it, it, it kind of doesn't feel dry. It's like a little dry. You need to put some kind of lip balm on it. But this, I feel like it has like wax or something in it because there is like this shield almost on your lips after that make it not just smooth, but like really, really moisturized. Yeah. No, the exfoliators. Yeah. That's one thing we, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I love about that is the goal was to really leave like a natural layer of oils on your lips because most exfoliation, like you said, it dries out your skin. That's why even like, you know, a lot of face exfoliators, like face scrubs, your skin feels dry and kind of like tight and itchy afterwards. I just don't like feeling like that. So for, yeah, for exfoliators, they also taste great. Um, you can, they're USDA certified, so you can technically eat some of it, but there's also like cheaper things to eat in life than yeah. You don't want to just like start chomping on some of this, like, you know, thing, but it, yes, you're right. It actually has a great smell and you know, it's on your lips. So you'd get a little taste anyways. It's really good. The only, my favorite, favorite, favorite products though, it, are the colored tinted lip balm, like lip. I mean, this, I wear this every day. I have one color upstairs by my laptop for my zoom calls and I have one in my purse. So whenever I go anywhere, it's in my purse but literally I wear these every day. These are just like tinted moisturizers, lip balm. I'm probably getting all the names wrong, but the colors are amazing. Thank you. Yeah. They're perfect. Cause it's like, they just, it's basically like a, a it just naturally enhances your lip color, regardless of what shade you use. So it always looks natural. And like, you know, if you're having a zoom call, you can drink water, drink coffee, and you don't have to worry about it smudging. Like it gradually fades as the day goes on and you can easily reapply it. Like I don't even use a mirror most of the time when I reapply. So it's just like, it's very low right. No, yeah, you don't a need a mirror product. at all. You're yeah. right. You don't it's have to just think about like, it. Just yes, which isn't the case for a lot. With a lot of other products that are similar, it's like you actually have to look in the mirror because it's so kind of tinted that it's lipstick with a little bit of balm, I guess. But this is like a great balance between the two where you don't need to be looking in the mirror at all. It's not like going to go on the outside edges of your lips and look crazy. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. So you guys are self-funded. That's incredible. Yes. Thank um, you. you guys are in anthropology and I think you said urban outfitters. Uh, free people. Very free people. Close. close. All in, they're all in the urban family. I know. Yeah, right. So, so urban mm -hmm. probably is next. Independent <laughs> retailers. Um, you're in a ton of independent retailers. And I know that you have kind of um, a different thought process around independent retailers than I've heard. So I'd love for you to share that. Um, on the show is, is why your focus has kind of been on those and, and how did it go kind of getting to them? Because I know you did a lot of cold outreach. Um, you maybe hired someone, it didn't work out. You took it into your own hands and you did a lot of cold emailing to retailers and you realized it's a numbers game. And that's super important, I think, to realize. So talk to us about independent retailers. So one misconception I had when we first started was I just thought that, okay, you know, we just need to get into one chain and then we've made it, right? Well, we did get into a chain and then guess what? It didn't work out because we are so small that we just kind of got lost in the mix. Thankfully, though, during that time, prior to that even, I kind of learned that independence was a really great and safe route to go. And so, as you mentioned, you know, I briefly talked about this. Um, I hired a sales rep, didn't really work out, but it was a blessing because I didn't have anywhere else to turn. It's not like I had all these people in my Rolodex to contact, like, oh, I can work with this sales agency. I didn't know anyone else. So I just started doing it and started sending a lot of emails. And yeah, 
some days I would wake up and I'd have over, you know, 30, sometimes over 40 uh, rejection emails. Some of them were polite. Some of them were very condescending. No, they were not nice. And I could tell basically the tone gave off. Like, I can't believe you have the audacity to contact us because we're so important and you're not. Thankfully I have thick skin because despite all the rejections, I did get a lot of yeses as well. And it wasn't also, and I was still being selective with cold emailing. I wasn't emailing every store that exists. I started researching what I thought would fit. And even that, like I learned more through just the data and learn just through, you know, just getting into certain retailers. And that's how I started learning which independents we actually did sell well in and which independents I thought we would, but that style actually wasn't a great fit. And that was once again, a learning curve and you just learn by doing. And I think one thing that, like a big takeaway I got from that is that no does not mean never. A lot of times it just means not yet. And some of my best retailers today are ones that have rejected me. And some of them have rejected me multiple times. And you were like, I'm not going to take this personal. I'm going to still reach out to you. And it was worth it because now you actually are working together. I think that's an important lesson because a lot of times if you take it too personal and you're like, oh, this person gave me such the meanest rejection letter ever, Yes, they're blacklisted. I'll never work with them. Well, then you just lost out on. Yeah, (laughs) it's business at the end of the day. And, you know, whether it's beauty or supplements or whatever, it's still business at the end of the day, you know? And so you have to put your feelings aside sometimes. It's hard. It's not like I loved waking up certain days and reading them. And even I'm human. Some days I would wake up and I would feel pretty awful the rest of the day because I just felt, I I mean, of course I had days I felt more defeated. And some days I literally would just have to take a few hours off and do something else because it affected me too much. So I'm not saying like every day was just rainbows and butterflies and, you know, sprinkles, but I just reminded myself it's nothing personal. And I, I know I have, I know I have a great brand and great products and people just need to discover them. And so I'm not Kim Kardashian, obviously. So I need to build that trust and I need to grow the brand organically. And how am I going to do it other unless I just grind? So when you say that you, you know, I think that's important when you feel defeated, what do you think are some important things for people to do? Like for entrepreneurs listening, someone might be feeling super defeated today. They might just be like, I, oh my gosh, I don't feel motivated today. I'm getting all of these no's. I've got a bad customer review. I, this employee like quit on the spot. I don't know what to do. Overwhelmed. What are some key things that you do to help yourself kind of feel better from feeling defeated? I think sometimes you actually just need to step away. I'm serious. And you don't need to feel lazy about doing it. If sometimes you're having a really bad day, I just want to go do as opposite of what a work thing would be. If that means like going to my favorite cafe and grabbing like, yeah, like, like just whatever it is and do something that, you know, is guaranteed to make you feel better. Like the last, for example, one thing I've really tried to make a point not to do is that when I was in my, like, um, when I was in my twenties, especially my early twenties, if I was having a bad work day, I would often resort to like texting one of my girlfriends or, you know, my husband who was my boyfriend at the time, like, let's go get drunk. Like, let's go to a bar. I would text my girlfriend be like, okay, have, yeah, I need happy hour, but I need it in like 20 minutes. Are you free? It sounds great in the moment, but it, for me and to each their own, I think, I don't, I think it's totally fine if you need to have a few drinks and wine, if you're having a bad day, if that's what you need that day, but don't turn that into a habit. Do you know what I mean? I started using that as like, my go-to every time I was having a bad day and it would not make me feel great the day after because I was hungover. And so now it's like, I didn't have a great day the day before and now I have a pounding headache and my mouth is dry and I'm like, I can't focus. Yeah. So I try to do things that make me, like just make me happy. Like, and so one thing that, you know, because, you know, my husband and everything, one thing that helps is like, sometimes if I'm feeling really bad, I actually just, I want like, cuddles. Like I really be like, can we go cuddle on the couch and watch a movie? Well, I think there's maybe like a difference between the self-love and socializing kind of going back to that, getting friends and going to drink. I mean, I'm a social person. I'm super like uh, extrovert. And so I like to be talking to people and going out for dinner and whatnot. But I do think there is a difference when you're feeling defeated with work to focus more on like this self-love, like what are things that I can do to make myself like for myself by myself to make myself feel better. 
because while the other things are energizing from like an energy perspective, it doesn't really help your mind like get wrapped around and kind of heal maybe from what just happened and what you need to overcome. Those are other distractions, maybe like healing versus distraction. And I think sometimes stepping back is also just, it makes it easier to tackle, if, especially if you have a problem at hand. It, I think it's easier to tackle it when actually you just, and, I, and I'm not the only person that says that. So many people say this, right? So it's not like I'm the only person, but sometimes it's almost easier to solve an issue or tackle it when you've not been thinking about it for a while. That's like when something will like pop into here, like, oh, that's actually how I can resolve it. Or, oh, maybe, you know, regardless of the scenario, like this is how I can do it better. It's like getting a good night's rest, right? That's like one of those things. I think sometimes just stepping away and doing something else is just, will just make you better at dealing with whatever crisis or whatever situation you have. Of course, it really depends. Sometimes you might have a situation where you can't just check out for the day. And I get that. It's like, maybe you can't, right? You literally can't. But if possible, like at least for me, it does help sometimes just to just literally step away for a few hours or even for a day. I mean, because as an entrepreneur, you're working every day anyways. You have no weekends. So you might as well take a day off, even if it's a Wednesday, because you're not really off on Saturday and Sunday anyways. Yeah. And you're not going to lose time because the thing is, you're not very useful if you're, yes. you're almost going into panic mode and feel you're going to have a meltdown. Right. You don't want to burn out too. So that's even worse. Yeah. You're yeah. not going to be that productive and you're probably more likely to mess up. It's like, you're probably more likely to do a bad job on whatever else you're doing. So it's like, okay, if you're having a problem right now, perhaps don't screw it up even more by just stick. Like, if you're like, no, I'm just going to stick it out. Let's just like burn the midnight oil. Like keep going, keep going, keep going. You might just end up doing a lot of other tasks or you might end up snapping at someone, right? Maybe because you're high strung. Let's say you snap at an employee or you snap at whoever, right? Coworker, whatever, like customer. And you, yeah, you do something. Yeah, exactly. All the things that you're thinking in your head that you'd love to say sometime, but you never did. And then one day all of a sudden out. you just say it. <laughs> you just like have your meltdown moment and you're like, okay. I'm well, maybe this like brand move. just isn't for you. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I'm just going to move to another planet now. Uh, yeah. yeah. So those, you just don't want those things to happen. Like you think those things in your head, like we all like, regardless of whatever business you have, you always have customers or clients and, you know, you're all, you know, we're all in positions in life when you're servicing someone. And of course, sometimes the idea in your head is like, you want to tell them like something that's maybe not the nicest, but this will reduce the chances of you just having word vomit and just going AWOL. Yeah. You don't want to become, you don't want to become a meme. So before we wrap up, what final advice do you have for entrepreneurs tuning in and what is next for Henna? I think planning is great, but I think it's also great to take action. And what I mean by that is like, I, there's just so many things that you can't really predict when it comes to business. I think all the biggest things that have happened to us in business, positive and negative, I've not anticipated whatsoever. So I think it's great to plan, but I think sometimes it's just or in general, I think it's good to start just taking action because maybe you have an idea in your head or you have a lot of ideas in your head and you don't know which one to start with. Just start testing them out, you know? Take it day by day, try out a few ideas, do some research, make some phone calls, send some emails, and you'll be surprised how quickly you'll figure out which ones to cancel out. And I figured that out even with Henna. I had a few other ideas before that too. And one of them I figured out within two days that it wasn't a good idea. And so I was like, okay, well, that research you know, and testing is perfect. Like there's no way I can do this. And then for Henna, we're now that things are, have been opening up a lot more, we're wanting to go back to normal a little bit. And what I mean by that is we want to be more aggressive with new product launches again, which we weren't during, you know, 2020 and 21. We were very conservative with product launches. So we just recently launched our face oils and then we want to launch some more products this fall. So yeah, I'm really hopeful and I feel like the momentum has started to pick up again with just a lot of things. And so I think the rest of this year, or I hope it's going to be really great, not just for us, but for everyone, you know, it's been tough the past years for everyone. So I just hope that this year just can gradually get better. Well, thank you so much, Laura. It was awesome hearing your story and thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. 
thank you so much for listening to the Stairway to CEO podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Lee Green. And if you have any burning business questions, please feel free to reach us at www.stairwaytoceo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the show, tell your friends, leave us a review and follow us on Instagram at Stairway to CEO. Until next time, guys, keep on climbing.